So I have to uh, begin with an apology. Um, I've been preaching for 10 years, and um, I've probably preached 500 sermons. And one of the things that I dislike most about sermons is coming up with a title. And the title today is maybe it's a, it's a strong candidate for the worst title I've ever uh, I've ever had. Uh, and and my working title was Take the Initiative. That's what I wanted to say, Take the Initiative, and that's what we'll talk about. But but I got clever. I was trying to think, well, what's another way of saying Take the Initiative? And I was thinking, you know, Carpe Diem. Some of you saw there was a Robin Williams movie that came out a couple of uh, decades ago, and and this teacher keeps telling his, his Latin students, Carpe Diem, Carpe Diem. It means to seize the day. To, to seize the moment, that there's an opportunity right in front of you, and you need to seize it. And that's, that's kind of the idea of carpe diem. And I got clever, and I said, oh, cool, if you just change two letters, then instead of being seize the day, it becomes carpe deum, seize God. And so I, I put that in the file, I closed the file, and I told Ashley, go ahead and print them. And then I went off, I was kind of in a hurry to get out of the building, I needed to go to a meeting in Eagle River, so I did that. And by the time I got to Eagle River, I thought it was a bad idea. Um, and by the time I got home, they'd already been printed. So so there it is. Um, if you're going to have a pun um, for your sermon title, don't. And if you're going to do that anyhow, then you probably don't want to have one based on a Latin pun. So Sorry about that. But I do want to talk about taking the initiative. I want to talk about seizing the moment. Um, uh, maybe not seizing God. I, I don't think that that's theologically even possible. But seizing the opportunity that God has put in front of us. That, that we believe, as people of faith, we believe that God has arranged the circumstances of our life so that in this moment we can do the things that God is calling us to do. So that's what I want to talk about because I think... For a lot of us, we, we don't do that as well as we probably should. Um, there's a, there's a, a line in the, the play Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare where Brutus is talking to the other conspirators. They're, they're planning to, to kill, um, Caesar. And, and before he can persuade them that this is a good idea, he says, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. He says, he says, before you can get your boat out of harbor, you've got to wait for the tide. But when the tide comes, you need to set sail. If we're going to kill Caesar, if we're going to assassinate the dictator, then we need to do it right away. We've got to, we've got to act right now on this opportunity that's coming in front of us. And maybe that's part of the reason is that, is that sometimes the people who, who use this sort of, uh, motivational uh, language, have sketchy motives, you know, that we're not really uh, sure if, if we want to get on board with the idea of assassinating somebody. So maybe, maybe not, depending on the person. But I mean, that's a hard thing to kind of embrace. And and we hear this in maybe more pedestrian avenues. Um, you know, I think I think it's very popular with high-pressure salespeople. They say, you know, this is your opportunity. You know, this price won't last. We're running out of stock. Um, you know, uh, we've, we've spent all the past three hours negotiating it down to this price, but that price uh, goes back up to where it was the moment you leave the lot or the moment, you know, you walk out of the condo or whatever it is, that there's this kind of high-pressure mentality that, that says, you know, you need to act right now. This is a moment, and this moment is in front of you, and if you don't act now, then it'll never come again. 
And, and so I think a lot of us have learned to push back. It's like, well, you know what? I'm going to sleep on it. I'm going to take some time. I'm going to ask some friends. I'm going to decide if this is a good idea. And if I lose this opportunity, that's just too bad. So I think a lot of us, a lot of us act that way. And yet at the same time, we know it's true. There are tides in the affairs of people that we have to take advantage of, that, that God has arranged the circumstances of our lives so that we can do the things that God has called us to do. And if we fail to do the things that God has called us to do, well, God can arrange them again in the future, but they won't be the same, and we will miss the blessing that God intended for us today. So that's kind of the, the, the big idea that I'd like to talk about today. How do we do this? How do we, how do we do this and not find ourselves buffaloed? How do we do it uh, in accordance with God's will? How do we know what to do? I mean, should we pray first? You know, that seems like a very biblical thing to do. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we take advantage of the opportunities? How do we carpe diem? How do we, how do we seize the moment? How do we take the initiative? We've been in this series now for, I guess this is only the second week. We've recently begun a series of messages talking about risk. And the idea there is the question, what if God is already doing everything in our life that we expect him to? What if God is already doing everything in our life that we expect him to? You know, we, we talked last week about how, how the, the, the problem we have as believers is that God has made some amazing promises. I, I will do anything you ask in my name. God has made some amazing promises to us. And yet if you look at us, our lives are pretty much the same as the people who live next door to us. I mean, you know, maybe may different in some areas, but, but largely pretty much what you would expect. We don't, we don't stand out head and shoulders above other people in terms of our are leaning into the promises that God has made. And, and uh, certainly I don't. Um, maybe some of you say, hey, hold on a second. But, but at least in my own life, I don't feel like I am taking advantage of the, of the promises that God has made to me. We talked last week about how, how um, if our current circumstances are right here, and the thing we're hoping for is, is over there, the hope we have is over there, what spans the gap between our hope and our present circumstances is faith. And if our hope is right here, if our hope is practically indistinguishable from our current circumstances, then there's really no faith. But faith is the place where God operates. We saw last week how, how Jesus could do no miracles in the town where there was no faith. That That the gap between where they were and what they hoped to have was so small that Jesus had no room to maneuver. There was no place for Jesus to operate. Whereas where there was a big gap, where there was a huge gap of faith, that's where Jesus could operate. So the question for us is, is is our life characterized by a hope that can only be filled by God. Do we live lives without a safety net? Is there a place where only God can close that gap? Only God can do the thing that we're hoping to have done. Is there even a hope that is distinguishable from our present circumstances? 
So that's the question we've been looking at. Is there, is there a plan B? Is there, is there a safety net? Or are we living our lives so that there really is no, no plan B? If God doesn't show up, then it's not going to happen. So that's kind of the, the, the question we're looking at today. And the answer, or at least one answer comes to us from, from the, um, from the, uh, gospel that Mark uh, gives us, the account of the gospel that Mark gives us in chapter 2. So while you're finding your scriptures, the context of this is that Jesus was in a, a town called Capernaum, and he went, uh, he did a lot of healing there. People got all excited about his ministry, but then he went on a tour of the region and did a lot of, of healing there as well. But now he's come back to Capernaum. So there's a lot of rumors flying around. Some people saw Jesus when he was here before. Other people uh, uh, maybe heard rumors coming back from these other towns. And now Jesus has returned to town. And it says he comes into um, home, Jesus' home base where he lived, probably uh, the the house where Peter, the um, the fisherman, lived. So it says it was reported that he was at home. And so many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And that makes sense, right? If you heard that Jesus was going to be at the Sullivan Arena tonight, would you go? You know, I would. You know, I'd love to see, you know, what's Jesus got to say? But more importantly, wouldn't it be cool if he did something really amazing, right? I'd love to see Jesus, you know, do something really cool. So the crowd is thinking the same thing. Maybe some of them have things they want Jesus to help them with. Maybe they just want to watch. Um, And in fact, it may seem, you know, if all you ever hear is my sermons, this may seem... Uh, hard to believe, but it says the crowds were electrified by his teaching too. So uh, maybe some of them just actually wanted to hear what Jesus had to say, and they were excited enough. Just the fact that they could get to hear Jesus speak um, was was electrifying to them. So for a lot of reasons, there's a crowd all around this building, and um, what happens is uh, these these people come. It says it says some people came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So we don't know how many there are. It could be 12 or 15, but four of them are carrying the the guy on his mat. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, there's a crowd here, right? They're, they're inside the building. The building's full, and then there's people peeping in the windows and standing at the door trying to, trying to catch a, a, a glimpse of Jesus or to hear what he's got to say. They can't get in. So what do they do? Well, one of the things that jumps out at me is they don't pray. You know, now, now I'm not saying they, they never prayed. I mean, maybe they prayed before they started this whole project, but they don't pray right then. You know, I think oftentimes prayer can be procrastination. Prayer can actually be disobedient. Mark Batterson talks about how, how, um, there are all kinds of things we don't need to pray to God about. We don't need to pray to God about whether we should seek justice or love mercy or walk humbly because God has already answered that question. We don't, we don't need to, to pray to God, uh, Lord, should I feed the hungry or clothe the naked? Do I, sh- Lord, what is your will in this area? Because, because God has already answered those questions. So there's all kinds of places where we really don't need to pray. And in fact, the, um, the prophet Isaiah, he, he gives an example of how the people of Israel in his time were going into worship service and seeking the Lord's face, saying, God, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for a sign from you. Tell us what to do. And God says, he says, 
um, I cannot abide your your um, your assemblies. He says, when you stretch out your hands, when you pray to me, I will hide my eyes from you. Why? Because they already know what to do and they're not doing it. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. These these men, the four men and whoever else was with them, they knew what to do. Maybe they had prayed. There's nothing wrong with prayer, except that sometimes we can use prayer to procrastinate, to put off doing what we know God is already calling us to do. So you may pray, but but maybe not. So there they are. They're looking at the building. Jesus is only about a 100 people away from them, but they can't get through those 100 people. So they say, what are we going to do? Well, if you've grown up in church, I know you've heard this story. It's in all the lectionaries. They go up to the roof. In the Middle East, in the Middle East, uh, people built flat roofs. Uh, people used them for for um, uh, drying food and uh, doing laundry. Sometimes for uh, bathing. Um, and so there was this roof that no one apparently was on. And the the men climbed up to. They they went up. There's a kind of a side ladder kind of a stairway thing. And they would go up uh, to the roof, and they began tearing apart the roof. The roofs would have been a couple of cross beams, and then some sticks and some some dried mud, and that's really all people used for roofs in that culture. So it was easy enough to dig through, and they begin digging through the roof. And you know, just stop and imagine that. You know, picture these guys. They've got their friend here. Toad him up to the roof of the building and they say, all we've got to do is get this guy to Jesus. But think how much faith it took to say that. You know, Jesus has been out of town. They've heard rumors. He was off in the other towns. They've heard rumors. Jesus has been healing people in other cities. But you know what? I didn't see it personally. He was here before and some people I know told me about some healings that happened. And so I've heard some rumors about Jesus, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. What if he's a fraud? What if the rumors were kind of blown up out of proportion? What if Jesus can't really help our friend? Or what if, what if Jesus says no? What if Jesus says no, you don't get that? Sorry. What if the homeowner stops us? And all of this in front of a crowd. Everybody in this village is there, it seems like. They're all watching. I mean, it's it's bad enough to, to show faith in private, but to show faith in public, that's hard. These guys are risking a lot. They could have egg in their face. But they do it anyway. They start digging through the roof of that building. And Jesus looks up, he sees the you know the dust start coming down, the twigs, the the bits of clay. And he sees their faith. Jesus sees their faith. So I would say the lesson there is don't take an audience for an answer. Don't take an audience for an answer. So often we do this. You know, I won't ask for a show of hands, but how many of you bless your food normally except at restaurants? You know, this is, this can be a hard thing. You know, I'm not saying you're in the face of other people and you're saying, you know, you're, you know, I don't, I, you know, you're not a good person because you don't, 
you don't pray over your food like I do. I just mean, do you pray at all? Do you change your behavior in public? Because I think oftentimes it's easy to do it. It's like I'm just going to fly under the radar. And oftentimes we take an audience for an answer. But these men don't. They carry their friend up there. They dig the hole in the roof. Jesus looks up and he sees their faith. You know, I wonder about that. It just says they carried him up on the roof and they dug through the hole. But, you know, have you ever carried somebody? I've got a picture here. Um, when my son was in uh, uh, Boy Scouts back in New Jersey, this is first grade, the little orange shirts there, um, we went to something called Scouts to the Rescue, and it was the... Uh, the firefighters of six or seven townships in New Jersey put this on once a year, and they got all the Boy Scouts to come see what they were doing. And this is called a vertical extraction. So it's the same thing as our, as our the heroes of our story did, only only in reverse. They're trying to get somebody out of a building. And the thing that they kept emphasizing is it's actually harder than it it, it may seem, right? And they demonstrated that by like letting it swing and this poor guy in the baskets, you know, bouncing off the walls and so forth. I mean, it's a kind of a tricky thing to get somebody through a hole in a roof. And so, you know, they needed, they needed uh, several people just to hold the weight of the man, and they needed somebody to steady the cable and so forth so he wasn't bouncing on the walls. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a task for more than, more than just one person. If, if you had a friend who was paralyzed, you probably still couldn't get him to Jesus. But if you had a group, if you had some friends, if there were some people that you could enlist to be part of this project, then you could get him through the hole in the roof. More than that, maybe you're the kind of person who just doesn't think that way. You know, it's like, I don't think, you know, I, I don't know anything about constructions. Talk to some of the people in this church. Does, does Pastor Luke know anything about church buildings? The answer is almost nothing, staggeringly little. I don't know anything about buildings, but I know people who know a lot about buildings. So I would say the next lesson is mobilize your small group. You know, you've heard me say before, and and I'm going to keep on saying this because I believe it, Christians need to be part of a small group fellowship. We just need people in our lives who can encourage us, who can hold us accountable, who can give us good ideas, who can carry us to Jesus, who can lower us through a hole in the roof, who can have the bright idea of poking a hole in the roof for us to go down through. Christians need to be part of a small group fellowship. So I would encourage you, if you're not part of a group of Christians that meets regularly, start one. Find some friends and make it a habit to meet on a regular basis with a group of Christians who can help you when you need lowered through a roof or who can give you the opportunity to help them. So mobilize your small group. One last observation here. What did the homeowner say? What were these guys thinking the homeowner would say? You know, there's speculation. This is the last time we heard about a house in Mark's gospel. We heard about Peter's mother-in-law serving him at home. So people say, well, this is Peter's house or Peter's parents' house, something like that. We don't know. It just says, it says he was at home. What did they think would happen when they tore up somebody's roof? You know, what, what I wonder 
is if they said to themselves, you know what, I don't really care. I'll deal with the consequences later. You know, I'm concerned about my friend. Jesus could go off on another tour. We might never get another chance to have him healed. So I want my friend taken to Jesus today, and I'll deal with the consequences of the roof later. Maybe they thought, you know what, if Jesus can fix my friend who's paralyzed, fixing a roof should be no trouble at all for Jesus. I'll ask him, I'll tack that on. You know, I heard he was a carpenter. (laughs) But they didn't let the building be the obstacle. You know, so often we do this, and this is something that churches do all the time, and unfortunately it's so much easier to see in other people than it is in ourselves. Let me show you these two pictures. First, the first one. Um, uh, ten years ago, ten years ago, back in 2010, I was at a conference, um, and I saw this sign on uh, next to the door of the the church um, worship center. It said, "No food or drinks, adults only, please." So that was the sign: no food, no drinks, adults only. And I went back to that to to a conference that happened to be held at that same. It's a gigantic church. That's why the whole conference is there. So I went back this year. And I saw the sign and I had to laugh because it's changed. It says, please, no food or drink in the worship center. So, first of all, they move the please to the beginning. Always a good idea, right? Please first, not last. Please. And then it says, no food or drink in the worship center. It doesn't say anything about kids. I don't know if kids are uh, expected to be there anymore, but they're no longer forbidden. And I think... That took some some real insight. I mean, it's easy to make fun of them, right? I mean, they still don't let you bring in your coffee or your hot chocolate. So, um, <laughs> so you know, maybe they've got some some growing to do there. But you see what they've already done. They said to themselves, you know what? There's people who show up at our church. They've got their kids. They don't know how our Sunday school program works. There was a line in front of the, the check-in station. You know what? Let's just let them take their kid where they feel comfortable. If they want to bring them to worship, no, it's not designed for kids, but we'll let them in. And, you know, it may be a little noisy. The kid may make a mess, but we will cope with that. It's so hard for us to see this in ourselves, but it's so easy to see it in somebody else. And so I applaud the church for actually going back and revisiting their policy, for saying, you know what, we need to make it easier for people to get into our building. Because what we want to do is we want people to meet Jesus. And that's the important thing. And so I would ask us, are we acting this way? Do we as a community of faith put people before buildings? Because that's what we see these guys here doing. They're putting people before buildings. And then the story goes on. It says Jesus saw their faith and then he said the wrong thing and everybody got upset and so he said, oh, yeah, I, I can heal him. But, you know, that was out of their hands. They had nothing to do with that. How Jesus chose to respond to the situation they've set before him is up to Jesus. You know, sometimes we say, Lord, thy will be done at the beginning instead of at the end. But the place we should say it is at the end. You know, we know a lot of the time, what it is God is calling us to do. We can look at our circumstances and we can say, you know what, I think God wants me to do this. And if we say, thy will be done then, if we say, you know what, Lord, 
I know some hungry people. I know some naked people. I know some people in prison. Thy will be done. You know what God's going to tell us. He's going to say, get started. And when you run out of your strength, then I'll take over. And that's what we see in this lesson. The men brought their friend to the to Jesus, and then they said, from here on, thy will be done. Jesus, you do whatever you want to do. And Jesus does the wrong thing. I mean, they didn't bring him there so he could get his sins forgiven. I mean, maybe they did. I mean, who knows? You know, I, I, I once imagined a scenario where this man had a, had a drinking addiction, and he, he worked construction like Jesus, and he fell off a roof. And he broke his back. And the thing that troubled him the most wasn't losing his ability to, to work or walk. It was the fact that he had done it to himself. And maybe what he needed to hear was what Jesus says to him, son, your friends, your, your, your sins are forgiven. So I don't know. Maybe Jesus said the right thing to him. But that's probably not what those four friends of his were expecting. So they waited on Jesus, but they waited on Jesus after they'd done everything they could do. Jesus calls us to have a faith that doesn't wait, that doesn't doesn't hide behind prayers and, and pious statements like, thy will be done, or if it be thy will. Jesus calls us to have a faith that says, I have some sense, Lord, of what needs to be done in this circumstance. I believe, Lord, that you have arranged these circumstances and you're waiting for me to act. So I'm going to act. I'm not going to let an audience deter me. If I need to, I'll bring my small group to work with me. And I won't let buildings, I won't let the things that can be, that that I can fix, get between me and the things that only you can do. Lord, thy will be done once I've done everything I can do. Let's pray. Loving God, we pray that you would guide us, that you would you would help us to see with your eyes the things that we kind of pass by and we say, well, that's not my problem or that's not a problem I know how to fix. Give us a sense that we can actually get started and that what you're waiting for is for us to get started. And that if we do what we can do, you'll do the rest. Help us, Lord, to have the kind of faith that seizes the day, that seizes the opportunity. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.